This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Kathleen Wynn speaking in around Kitchener, uh, talking about it. Now she's admitting uh, there is no magic bullet for, uh, or at least she doesn't think there's a magic bullet for uh, the situation that Ontario finds it in in regard to uh, our electricity prices and uh, is alluding that, uh, you know, maybe in order to save uh, people in rural areas who are paying astronomical delivery charges, maybe the way to do that is, you know, we got to help them here in the uh, urban areas. So uh, do you think your bill is going to go up so it can lower the bill of those in uh, rural Ontario? Because now the electricity that rural Ontario has been using to heat its homes for decades, the clean energy that uh, Kathleen Wynne has constantly prom- been promoting. Now nobody in rural areas can afford to buy it anymore. So she's encouraging natural gas up there. And again, I got nothing against clean natural gas. I think it's a great option that we should have looked at before. But how ironic is it that people in rural Ontario who've been living off clean, efficient, cheap electricity for decades now can't afford to do it in a win Ontario? And as a result, these people have to be pulled off clean burning or clean electricity in order to be put on cheaper fossil fuel. What? For years, these people have been heating their homes with electricity and it hasn't been an issue. Now in Kathleen Wynne's mad dash to save the planet on the backs of Ontarians, Now Ontarians can't even afford her clean energy anymore. And they're going on to fossil fuel just so they can afford to heat their homes. And she wants us buying electric cars? You're kidding me, right? So, you know, where does it go from here? Again, she's floating out ideas, hoping, you know, whatever one doesn't, whatever one ticks people off the least, that's the one she'll use. And now it appears the direction that she may be heading in is, well, you know, you people in the city, you have to do more to help your rural friends. You people in the city have to do more to help those people living out in the rural areas. It's about time you gave something back. Which to me seems absolutely bizarre considering she's taking away the clean energy that she wants everybody to have because they can't afford it. So how is this progress? How is this progress? People in rural Ontario cannot afford to heat their homes with Kathleen Wynne's electricity anymore. So now they're going to fossil fuel. Nuts. Absolutely nuts. And now you mark my words, your rates are going to go up so she can get those rural votes. Because those people are dying out there. And that's, you know, that's not her fault. That's your fault. That's not the premier's fault for not doing her due diligence, for not doing her cost analysis, for overspending on green energy by overspending, not spending, overspending on green energy by $37 billion, says the Auditor General. But that's not her fault. That's your fault. So we're going to penalize you people that live in the uh, urban or, uh, urban areas. We're going to penalize you because you people, you rich fat hogs, you should be paying more to help your rural friends. It's not Kathleen Wynne's fault. It's your fault. So you're going to pay. We're going to raise your rates 
so they can get some relief. So they can get some relief while we wait to put them onto fossil fuel and get them off that clean burning electricity that is so expensive nobody can afford. Where is the progress, Miss Wynn? What have we accomplished here other than bankrupting Ontarians? Uh, to talk more about all of this, Parker Galland is with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario, and is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. Thank you. Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. So, uh, obviously, she's floating. I, the Premier Wynn is floating out ideas on how best to solve this problem, but of course, seems to be avoiding the one that we all want, and that's to rejig the whole energy uh, green energy plan and uh, pull some of these contracts and renegotiate them uh, instead of doing that. She's robbing Peter to pay Paul, it appears, uh, giving us our own money back in the form of rebates. Now, do you feel we will see uh, urban rates go up to subsidize those that live in the rural uh, areas that can no longer afford to heat their homes with electricity? Well, I, you know, I think if, you, if we look at the, you know, the talk uh, from this government about balancing the budget come next year, uh, there's certainly a drive on them to get us in balance at least one year out of the next 10. And uh, I think the reason why she's talking about the shell game of shifting, uh, you know, basically shifting money from the urban communities to the rural communities to, to sort of level out the, the playing field uh, and to, you know, provide grants for natural gas to expand to these rural communities is so that she can balance the budget because there's nothing left in the treasury I don't think that kind of could go to support the uh, the rural community. I mean the other thing is most of the rural community is serviced by Hydro 1 which she sold off, right? Or sold off a chunk of it and plans to sell off more. And you know, when she sold that off, she settled up um, with the Ontario uh, Electricity Finance Corporation, which held all that old stranded debt that was accumulated under the old Ontario Hydro. And um, so when she sold off Hydro One, the guarantee, and if you, you go into the web, their website, you'll find that they're going to pay out 70 to 80% of their after-tax profits in the form of dividends. So if the province continues to hold 70% of Hydro One, they're going to be getting a nice fat dividend check every year of about 400 to 500 million bucks. And that is where I think she should grab the money using those dividends to reduce the the rural community's rates rather than so sell off the rest of Hy- rather than sell off the rest of Hydro One. Right, rather than sell off the rest of Hydro One. And you know, she'd have to eat eat some crow about uh, you know all the infrastructure spending, but the, that's one way. I mean, the other thing that has to happen is we have to get those electricity rates down. I mean, the off-peak rates, time-of-use off-peak rates have gone up 222% since 19, or 2008. That's an incredible increase. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people can't afford to continue to heat their homes with electricity out there in the rural communities. How bizarre! How bizarre is it, though, that you know, she's pushing everybody to get off fossil fuel. And then these people that have been on electric heat or electricity to, to heat their homes in rural areas for years, now they have to get off that clean energy because they can't afford it. I know. it's, it's Like, ironic. how ironic is that? And, and so these people that have been surviving for decades on electricity, we now have to pump out gas to them. Yes. 
But my suspicion is that if we get more of those people in the rural communities uh, consuming more gas, that'll generate more revenue under her cap and cap trade. Cap and trade, right? yeah. But the odd thing was there was a paper like a year ago that said that from the liberals that said they wanted to get everybody off of natural gas by yeah, 20. That's right. They th- wanted to move them onto, you know, they wanted to move everybody onto electricity. So, and including, you know, providing big fat grants for you to buy your your electric vehicle. So by 2030, will all of a sudden electricity be rates be so low that everybody will just be magically generate or heating their homes with electricity? Like who would ever be able to afford that? No, nobody will. Like if people in rural Ontario can't afford it, how are people, you in know, urban, you know in urban, urban areas going to do exactly. it? Exactly. I mean, we, and we're not, we're not, I mean, we're producing, you know, we're signing up all kinds of contracts and putting them up, but it's all intermittent, unreliable wind and solar energy. I mean, when the wind's not blowing, we're not going to get any power. And, you know, people forget that. So we have to back that up with gas plants. And then we turn around and move those gas plants on occasion as well, right? So what options does she have here? I mean, and, you know, I guess my my follow-up to that is, why doesn't she just eat crow and move on? Eat crow, fix it, move on. I mean, I, I, like, I, there, I it's like this I, I is exactly, not getting any better. You know, think the same thing. There's, there's, she's going to admit that they've made big mistakes and eat crow, as you say. I mean, there's a whole and she sort of admitted a mistake with the, you know, by saying that these rates were going to be more expensive than what she ever thought. She never anticipated that these would impact rural Ontario the way that they have. I don't know why. She must have done cost analysis, or at least you think she would have, without before well, she, the, you know, embarks the, uh, on a project of this size. The AG, the uh, um, Auditor General, suggests that there was no cost benefit analysis done. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that there, you know, I and, and many other people have been writing to her for many years and writing articles for many years expressing the fact that this is going to drive prices way up. If, if the message wasn't, you know, clear to her, mm-hmm. surely the people within the ministry and the people within the, uh, you know, the, the units like the OPGs and the Hydro Ones must have been telling her something. Certainly she, she couldn't have missed all the news and, and just suddenly discovered that rates have increased tremendously. Somebody should have told her, right? So, yeah, I mean, and I, I've had experts on for years saying the exact same thing that you're saying, that, that, that lots of people knew about it. What are her options then? I mean, if she's not going to go in and dismantle her green energy plan and, and, and start from scratch, is she really just not robbing Peter to pay Paul here? That's all she's doing, yeah. But, I mean, she has got options. Um, as an example, we spend, uh, the system spends, and we pay for it as ratepayers, about $400 million a year on conservation programs, you know. Uh, and then if we do actually conserve, what happens is your local distribution company goes in and applies for a rate increase because their revenue goes. Yeah. And they get that rate increase 99% of the time. Yeah. So she can stop this conservation uh, stuff. And that would save $400 million and a lot more. She could cancel some of those wind projects that haven't um, you know, started to be built yet. There's stacks of them. And that's going to cut down on future rate increases. She can also move the Ontario Electricity Support Program over to where it belongs, to, you know, to a tax ministry like the Community and Social Services, because the rates that have gone up so much since the Liberals have taken over have driven people to energy poverty. People that weren't there are now in that position because of the rates have gone up so fast. 
So that's, that's a couple hundred million dollars she could move over there. So she could save that. The other thing she could do is, uh, or we could do, is uh, get those time of use rates down so that people will actually consume more and we won't have to ship it over to the states at a big loss that the ratepayers now are picking up, right? You talked about uh, the conservation programs, and we already know we have an abundance of electricity. Um, why spend money on conservation if, in fact, like you said, as soon as consumption goes down, they have to increase the rates in order for these companies to make a profit? Right. Uh, but if she cancels the conservation policies, is she not all can- also canceling or canceling propaganda for her policy? I think yeah, that's it's a big admission. That's the whole thing, and you know, for her to sort of cancel that conservation spending would be, as you say, a direct admission that they've gone in the wrong direction. But you know, do you think Ontarians? That's a good way to do it. Do you think Ontarians would give her a second chance if she did fix it? And I mean, fix it in such a way that's just not a band-aid solution until the next election, or by pushing the responsibility onto the next generation. I think people are, are, are fed up, to be yeah. honest with you. Um, you know, the stuff that I'm getting on a regular basis, either, you know, when I post an article or, or you know, via email, are, are people constantly lamenting. I mean, it's not just individuals. It's businesses as well. I've yeah. been to several town hall meetings in the last month or two, and, my God, the small, the small business community is really, really angry and mad and can't hire people because their rates keep going up. And, you know, and they can see no relief coming at all. So, I mean, it's not just, it's not just the poor uh, seniors that, you know, are, are having to decide between eating or eating or, mm-hmm. uh, or eating, buying food. You know, it, it's, it's spreading right through all of, you know, Ontario. Well, when you think about it, what, you know, what people talk about around the kitchen table and, you know, the bread and butter issues of the Canadian family, we're not talking about education. We're not talking about health care. We're not talking about our kids. We're not talking about the economy or jobs. We're talking about the price of electricity. Yes. It's yeah. nuts. Like, is that the, like, what a first world problem to have. My goodness. I, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, we've gone backwards by hundreds of years, you know. So, so can the next party fix this? Is that possible, Parker? Well, I, you know, I wouldn't say they can fix it, but I, I think they can straighten it out so that rates stop increasing on a regular basis, and they can move, you know, ingredients that are mixed in here uh, that really are social programs, like, as I said, that Ontario Electricity Support Program, uh, to where they rightly belong, you know, in, in other um, other ministries so that we can account for them on a proper, you know, budgeted basis. And that's, you know, I, I, I don't say it's, you know, we're going to see rates decline, but at least I think the next, the incoming party, uh, and the next ruling party in the province can slow this down or stop it completely and, and uh, you know, cancel the Green Energy Act, stop, you know, uh, putting these um, industrial wind turbines up all over the place. Uh, you know, that will, that will go a long way to sort of solving some of the issues. 
Uh, interesting note from a listener. Government is defining the boundaries of cities to stop housing outside uh, to do what f- uh, form a green belt? Rural home values must be dropping because of unbelievable energy costs. That's a valid point, too. I mean, if you live out there and you're not on the gas system or something, that's going to that's gonna do something with the value of your home, doesn't it? Oh, very much so, yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, where, where industrial wind turbines have gone up, if you talk to a real estate agent acting in those communities, you'll find out they will say the value of the properties have gone down. Yeah. They've decreased in value. There's no doubt about it. Which means that, you know, the local community is going to suffer because if, if the yeah, it's uh, tax, base. tax assessment yep. reduces the value of the house, the realty taxes will fall. Yeah. That affects the community. So as I said, it's, it's you know, it's insidious. It just keeps moving in all different directions. Well, there was just no telling this government, was there? I mean, they were hell-bent to get this done no matter what. Yeah, they had um, they had a vision, I guess, and the vision came to them from the environmental, you know, non-government organizations. I mean, they took George Smitherman over and gave him a tour of Germany and Denmark and pointed out solar panels and wind turbines, and he came back and boom, we had the Green Energy Act. You know, but the thing is, you know, and you hear that all the time, and then you go up to you go over to Europe. It's like it's that's all balanced with things like coal and everything else. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not like everybody's clean and green over there. They don't have the natural gas we have. Well, not at all. That's right. Uh, I mean, they have to pay Russia for the natural gas if they want gas. Yeah. So they're kind of stuck on that. But I know. Britain it's... is now talking about fracking. So. My guess is Britain is going to, you know, generate some some of their own gas instead of having to depend on others to provide it. So, you know, I think some of the countries over there are changing. Germany is certainly uh, opening up coal plants and delivering a lot more of their energy with coal than than it was before. Even the, you know, the bad, the, the uh, high sulfur coal as well. So. Uh, what do you think Canada or Ontario's grid will look like 20 years from now? Will we still be having these problems? Oh my God, I hope not. I mean, I'm you know I, I'm a I believe that the base load here that we've got uh, from nuclear is safe and secure and and relatively cheap, and it can continue to provide us with you know the base load of power that we need for many many years to come after these refurbishments go through at a reasonable price. We also have a lot of hydro, but we haven't got a lot of residual hydro that can be developed like, you know, Quebec had, if you will. Um, so we've got the basis. Um, you know, the the building uh, requirements and regulations now, you know, say that you're, you know, you've got to be sort of energy efficient no matter what you're putting up, whether it's an office tower or whether it's a, mm-hmm. a small little bungalow. So, I mean, those things take a long time to sort of reach, you know, uh, fruition, if you will. I mean, the housing market doesn't change overnight. It takes probably, you know, decades and decades. And then, you know, better insulation, those sorts of things, better windows, all of those things will help us reduce our, our demand for energy. But, you know, we can't get there overnight. We can't afford it. And that's what's happening. We're losing jobs. We're driving people into energy poverty, and the rest of us have to support those those uh, people. Parker Galan has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns. Parker, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. 
Thank you, Scott, for having me. Thank you. Uh, of course, Premier Wynne talking about uh, lowering the delivery charges of rural Ontario customers by simply making people in the built-up areas pay more. Shouldn't you be doing more? How can you sit there and let your people, your friends in rural Ontario starve, you city people? This is all your fault. Not Kathleen wins, so you should be paying. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Well, you might remember that uh, the Prime Minister's office last week uh, corrected Fox News for not updating their story on the Quebec City uh, mosque shooting uh, and uh, keeping up on their site that a uh, Moroccan, a man of Moroccan descent was in custody when, in fact, uh, as time progressed, police later confirmed uh, that he was a witness, not a suspect. And, of course, the lone shooter was a uh, white, blue-eyed person from Quebec. Uh, and, of course, uh, once Fox realized this and they decided they'd uh, apologize and turn it down, or sorry, uh, correct the uh, correct the post and, and change it and, and take the old one down. Well, now it has turned out, and I don't know if you saw this just before the uh, big Super Bowl yesterday, but Bill O'Reilly of Fox News, he's in an interview with Trump in which O'Reilly basically calls Russians uh, and Putin uh, Putin's a killer, is what he says. And, of course, Russia real upset about that, and now they want Fox to apologize. Here's the clip of Bill O'Reilly interviewing Donald Trump prior to the Super Bowl. Do you respect Putin? I do respect him. Do you? Why? I, well, I respect a lot of people, but that doesn't mean I'm going to get along with him. He's a leader of his country. Uh, I say it's better to get along with Russia than not. And if Russia helps us in the fight against ISIS, which is a major fight, and Islamic terrorism all over the world, right. major fight, that's a good thing. Will I get along with them? I have no idea. He's a killer, I though. Won't. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. We got a lot of killers. Why, you think our country's so innocent? All right, uh, the Kremlin now demanding an apology from Fox News. To talk more about all of this, John Calarusso is with us, Ph.D., Professor of Anthropology, Linguistics, and Languages at McMaster University, and he is with us now. Hello, John. How are you today? Uh, good afternoon, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, the Prime Minister's office got a retraction from Fox News when uh, it uh, was slow to update the story of the Quebec City mosque shooting. Uh, will they say sorry to Putin over this? Well, I, I, you, you don't call a head of state a killer uh, without using the, the adjective alleged. Hmm. Uh, that's what the alleged is for, to prevent uh, these kinds of showdowns. I think Fox News will have to issue some sort of qualifying statement to the Kremlin uh, saying that this is simply a, a candid, uh, un, you know, ill-considered and unconsidered response. Uh, on the part of their uh, of Bill O'Reilly to to something he's considered outrageous from President Trump, um, I think protocol demanded. I think it's a prudent thing for Fox to do, and I do think that it was, it was natural and understandable for O'Reilly to say this. But I do think it was uh, a breach of of, uh, of journalistic uh, norms. Uh, lots of chatter about alternative facts and fake news. Where does this all fit in? Okay, well, um, I'm not a psychiatrist, but let me say that uh, President Trump exhibits all the traits of what's called a narcissistic personality disorder, uh, in which um, the individual is obsessed with status and with rank 
uh, with encounters with people of higher status, and anyone else is considered lower and, and therefore does not deserve anything but disdain. We're not getting arguments out of this president. We're getting insults. And I think that we're going to see that now into the, as long as he lasts, however that long that may be. Um, I don't think he's going to change. I think the only thing he's going to mature. And I think that when people uh, such as Tillerson and others uh, weigh in, from his cabinet and other appointments to try to balance in General Mattis and all. I think that, that they'll have minimal impact on his actual behavior. Uh, so I, I think that um, alternate facts uh, is a fancy word for just saying what we used to say was BS. Hmm. Um, and this is something that comes naturally and is essential to the dynamics, mental dynamics, I think, President Trump. Uh, so, right for Russia to ask for such an apology, what would the U.S. government, w- w- would they even weigh in on this? What are their thoughts? Well, I think they're smart. I'll keep quiet. Uh, as to their thoughts, uh, it varies upon with whom you speak and what sector they're in. Um, there are some that will, will lay absolute atrocities at Putin's feet, um, including the early bombings that went on to, uh, at the beginning of his, his rule. Uh, to initiate a second war in Chechnya, these sorts of things. Um, there will be people that will, will blame Litvinenko's murder, and maybe Borisovsky's death, and all this on, on Putin. Um, I'm not saying, as Trump said, I mean, governments do resort to extreme action occasionally. It's a question of to what extent and for what purpose. And I think that certainly if if Putin wanted to look tough and strong by killing adversaries, he's certainly sort of given that impression. I'm not saying he's done so. And, in fact, I think in many cases probably probably not. But I do think that um, uh, he sort of left himself open to this kind of perception. And I think that um, he has to think about, Putin has to think about whether or not he should make some moves and steps to, to go to greater lengths to, to correct this image. Um, there's no way of knowing. We'll never know who's been responsible for some of these things. Um, but I do think that uh, in the environment where we have to conduct business and carry on as governments, one state to another and whatnot, certain standards have to be maintained. And I think that Putin would be well advised to perhaps try to maybe refurbish his image a bit. And Trump would be well advised perhaps to let others speak for him uh, when it comes to dealing with Putin, because there's a dark side here. There is an issue of whether or not the Russians have in some way suborned uh, Donald Trump. And I think this means that he cannot do anything in a positive way to Russia without being seen as being basically corrupted by them. So he has to let others do this if they're going to be done at all. We do have, we share interests in certain areas. In other areas, we're radically opposed. And this is not unusual for states. So I do think that if we want to pursue places where our interests coincide, fine, let uh, someone at the State Department level, ambassadorial level, or, or secretarial level do that. I don't think Trump can do that now. I think it's absolutely off the table. Uh, I think he understands that. But that's, who are friends and who are enemies here? Because obviously a lot of people would put Fox and Trump in the same camp, and maybe Russia in that camp as well. There's O'Reilly calling Putin a, a killer. Uh, and, and, you know, Russia response with, we would re- prefer to receive apologies to our president from such a respectable television company. 
Like, who's eating who here? Well, they're trying to be polite. They're trying. They're trying to open the the gambit or the the, the uh, conflict with a certain degree of respect and trying to put it at a certain level to induce a fox to perhaps respond in kind, rather than going out in some kind of savage way, say the way Duterte would probably do it, or something like that. Um, the who's friends and who it's it's mixed, Scott. Um, Certainly, with regard to Putin's ambitions to restore a Soviet hegemony-like scenario for Russia, we're opposed to that. We want it to become a normal country, as we think of a normal country. But their history and such is different. They don't think of themselves as having any future if they're consigned to what we think is normalcy. Um, so there, there are these deep, profound polarizations, and this is normal for the international scenario. Um, I think that... In some ways, we should, our interests align. In other ways, our interests, as I say, are severely opposed. And this kind of mixed scenario is inherent. We have to learn to live with it. We can't play moral games uh, the way Trump would like to do, say, or even the natural response of O'Reilly on this. Um, I think it's more complex than that. Can he keep creating this confusion? I mean, it seems like he's making enemies with our allies and cozying up to our enemies. Well, I think that there were certain grounds that that have never been articulated by Donald Trump that perhaps justify or motivate some of his attitudes. For example, the United States carries most of NATO, uh, and the other members have not really contributed their, their fair share. Um, but then to sort of flippantly dismiss NATO, I mean, this, this is, again, this, this problem of this type of personality. Um, it, this is not the way a head of state deals with an issue. And I think that uh, this may play well to a certain base of support within the U.S., and that's not a majority base, and we should be clear about that. Uh, so for domestic purposes, some of this may, may resonate. But I think on the international stage, this is drastically disruptive. This is confusing, as you say, and it's dangerous. John Colarusso has been with us, Ph.D. Professor of Anthropology, Linguistics, and Languages at McMaster University. John, thank you for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Uh, let's bring in Michael Diamond. Uh, Michael Diamond, Principal of Upstream Strategy Group. He is a conservative uh, pundit and is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Did you see the Saturday Night Live sketch with uh, Spicer? You know, I, I saw it and then I heard it on uh, radio this morning, and it actually gets better and better. I've never laughed so hard in my life. <laughs> I uh, hope Sean Spicer uh, uh, was able to laugh at this. Well, you know, and that's what it, he said. He thought it was funny. A little over the top, but he thought it was funny. But what else is he going to say? Yeah. Is it odd that he's laughing at his and Donald Trump's not laughing at his? Well, it's not odd because we've been watching Donald Trump for a very long time, and we know he's an incredibly thin-skinned uh, fellow. But uh, in politics, to be successful, and Donald Trump certainly has been successful during his short time in politics, you've got to be able to laugh it off. And if he doesn't, it will be uh, his undoing. Even Nixon went on laugh on. So Trump needs to certainly uh, get on with that. Good point. Uh, okay, the prime minister's office got a retraction from Fox News over the lack of updated information in regard to the Quebec City mosque shooting. Uh, will they say sorry to Putin in regard to what happened with O'Reilly and Trump? Well, there's a big difference between the situation with the uh, the Canadian request for uh, up, update and uh, the Russian request is the truth. And uh, Bill O'Reilly has no reason to apologize to Vladimir Putin because what he said is frankly accurate. 
So uh, is that it? Is this story over or will this keep going? I think it will keep going, especially since we have a president or the Americans have a president who does not see the United States as Ronald Reagan used to cast it as that shining city on a hill, but as a country that has committed sin and is really no better than the Russians. So we'll probably see him bring it up again, and I don't think the Russians are going to stop, but I do hope Fox uh, holds holds firm on this. So you don't think they should apologize for this? Absolutely not. I think if uh, anything, Bill O'Reilly on his show tonight should point out the many crimes against political opponents and against dissidents that Vladimir Putin and his regime have committed. Should he have said alleged killer? In referring to Putin, should should have O'Reilly said alleged killer instead of killer? Oh, are we losing Michael? Are you still there, Michael? All right, let's see if, uh, Luke, can you see if you can get a better line there and uh, we'll bring Michael in uh, as quickly as we can. Uh, you know, I, I think it's telling that, um, and I, I, as I told you, I, I howled with Melissa McCarthy's impression of uh, Sean Spicer. And it was great to hear that uh, he thought it was funny. <laughs> How can you not? A little over the top, he said. Mm, yeah, that's what satire is. Uh, but he thought it was funny. So it's interesting. And yeah, when he, they, they talk about uh, Alec Ball, oh, that's not funny. So it's interesting that he finds the satire on himself funny, but he doesn't find the satire on Trump funny, nor does uh, Trump. Let's bring back in uh, Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto and a conservative pundit. Are you there, Michael? KGB uh, disconnected us. That's what's happened, man. It's Yeah, it's probably going in through some Russian server somewhere. Uh, do you think Donald Trump's going to weigh in on this? What does he do? Because Fox and Trump are all supposed to be in the same camp, and Russia, too. Now, gee whiz, there's, there seems to be trouble in paradise. What happens well, now? Remember, Donald Trump's also been quite willing to go to war with Fox. So he had no problem going after Megyn Kelly. Mm-hmm. If there's someone at Fox you know, that he, that he thinks is not uh, favorable to him, he'll treat them as poorly as he'll treat any other journalist. Uh, on this, it's not the first time that he's talked about the United States being comparable to Putin's regime. Uh, so I think we'll see him continue that because I think he truly believes that the Americans have sins to apologize for. If Barack Obama, I remember Michelle Obama when Barack Obama won the Iowa caucus in 2008, she came out and said something that I found very offensive. That for the first time in my life, I'm proud to be an American, and I thought that was so disgusting. And that makes what Donald and Donald Trump's statements make that look like uh, you know motherhood and apple pie. There was nothing wrong with Michelle Obama's uh, comments in retrospect because what Donald Trump said is just beyond the pale of what any patriotic American would say or believe. Uh, was it right for Russia to ask for an apology? Um, we shouldn't be surprised because this is you know they're used to. Operating when they control the media, you know the old Soviet Pravda. So we shouldn't be surprised on that. Uh, I think it is different than it, it, it's a different issue than when the Canadian government uh, uh, made that approach. And I thought when the Canadian government made that approach, it was wrong, quite frankly. So I, I don't think it's appropriate for governments to uh, demand retractions from uh, media outlets in other countries, even when it is just asking for accuracy. Well, I mean, that's why it was slightly different, but I, I still think we should always operate uh, cautiously and maybe put out a statement, but uh, uh, we should not direct and we should not be seen to have government direction of media. Uh, the line from uh, from the Kremlin is, we think uh, such words, uh, we think such words of Fox News correspondents uh, are unacceptable and insulting. We would prefer to receive apologies to our president from such a respectable television company. Surprised by respectable being in there. Um, 
you know, you would not have heard the Prime Minister's office in Canada refer to Fox as respectable. Yeah, that's uh, my that's point. That's probably a nice uh, a nice change for Fox News, and the Russians are trying to be, uh, you know, uh, make friends with honey, I guess, in this, but uh, I don't think they're going to see this apology, and uh, O'Reilly's show will be, I think, very highly watched tonight, and very interesting. Hmm. Obviously, Trump likes to keep everybody confused and in suspense. He said that as much during the last uh, televised debate. Uh, why does he appear to be snuggling up to once we're, once we're our traditional enemies and just generally pissing off our allies? You know, in every respect, Donald Trump's the opposite of uh, what we've seen in the White House before. And again, going back to Ronald Reagan, who absolutely loved the United States. It was the city on the hill and the Russians that were part of the evil empire. And, and Americans really bought into it. And it, it's so distressing to see people who served uh, Ronald Reagan and part of the Reagan revolution now spin and twist themselves into pretzels to be able to be aligned with Donald Trump. They should be standing up to this because it's really a nonsense and it, it's hurtful to the Republican Party and the American Republican long run. You, as you mentioned, it's harmful to the Republican Party. Where does this leave them when half of them are saying one thing and the leader saying another? Yeah, when you have Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and John McCain in the Congress saying, you know, agreeing with Bill O'Reilly and uh, chastising the president being on this or the quote-unquote so-called judge or any number of issues, it is going to divide the Republican Party. And right now, things are going well. But we're only, what, 15, 16 days into the Trump presidency, so there's not a whole lot of time to judge him by. What's going to be very interesting is when he has his first loss. If you look at the Ford administration here in Toronto, Rob Ford had a swimming couple of first couple of months and even into the first year. And then he lost a major vote on council, and it showed to the other councillors that uh, the emperor had no clothes. If Donald Trump loses the nomination of Betsy uh, Davos for uh, Secretary of Education, which is getting pretty tight, two Republicans have already said they will not support her, no doubt. Democrats have said they will support her. So if one more Republican uh, doesn't show up or doesn't vote for her, she will lose her nomination. I think that would be a very early early incident of the emperor being proven to have no clothes. And after that, once he loses once, it's going to be much easier for the Congress to continue to stand up for him. What about the travel ban and, you know, just what he's going through now with uh, judges overruling him? Um, How does he win this one? So it's it's different and it's the same as what we've seen before because as long as there's been courts that have been ruling against politicians based on their findings, we've had politicians complaining about activist judges, but we've never had a politician like Donald Trump came out yesterday and referred to a member of the judiciary, which is an equal branch of government, one of three in the United States, as so-called, and questioning the legitimacy of that member of the government. So that that's quite different than what we've seen before. Uh, I think judges, quite frankly, have been put on notice by this president that if you rule against my administration, I will call you out by name to millions and millions and millions of Twitter followers, and I will make things difficult for you. Is that good or bad, though? That is very bad. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think it's bad in the case of General Motors. If you're a judge, I don't know. Is it bad? I mean, especially when you got half the country on your side. The independence of judiciary is what uh, is, is so important to both the system in, the can- in Canada and the United States. And what we need to know in the United States, it's even easier. If a judge commits high crimes and misdemeanors, if a judge does not fulfill their responsibilities, in Canada it's nearly impossible to get rid of a federally appointed judge. Very, very hard. It takes an act of Parliament. In the United States, there is a better process for it with the impeachment. And, and judges can be removed uh, if they are not fulfilling their responsibilities properly. A judge 
ruling based on what they find to be constitutional is not high crimes and misdemeanors and is not an abdication of their responsibility. So Donald Trump should appeal the decision, which is the proper course of action. He should say that he disagrees, but he should never question the legitimacy of another branch of government. It's no different than Democrats who are questioning his legitimacy to be president. He is 100 uh, percent was legally and legitimately elected as president. Anyone who says otherwise is spewing cod swallop, but the same goes for him, and he has to play by the rules he expects others to play for him. Michael Diamond has been with us, principal of Upstream Strategy Group in Toronto and a conservative political pundit. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Common for parents, it's becoming even more common, for parents to have their kids at home as they uh, battle debt and other financial burdens. And the amount, uh, just in the last few years, um, the increase of people uh, in the age group of 20 to 29 that are still living in home uh, has gone up drastically since the 1980s. So how do parents cope with all of this? How do you help your kids get back on their feet but don't make them dependent and never leave your house? Uh, Carolyn Humby is with us. Uh, sorry, Carolyn Humby. She is an investment advisor at First Ontario Credit Union and with us now. Hello, Carolyn. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, how much of an impact are boomerang kids having on their parents nowadays? Well, actually, that's very interesting because I'm finding that uh, whether it's funding their education while they're away and then they come home again, um, I do find that there are many of my clients that don't have the funds to set aside for their own retirement because they're busy taking care of their children, as you said, like they're, they may be 30 years of age. So it is a big deal. Um, there is also an expectation. I'm finding that a lot of my clients are less concerned about leaving a huge inheritance because they have funded those educations and helped them along the way to get a good start. Oh, that's but, a great way to look at it, isn't it? Hey, I don't have to leave them all everything. I'm giving <laughs> half of it to them now. That, well, that's great because that relieves the guilt of parents. Well, people are living longer, so it's kind yeah. of sad to think that if your parents are in their 80s and 90s that you need an inheritance to make ends meet at the end of the day. Mm, good point. Uh, so often what's happening is instead of uh, looking after their own retirement, they're helping out their kids, which nips into their retirement and doesn't help them uh, out in the end. How do you balance this? What's a good? Uh, obviously, you want to help your kids out. If they need to come home, you're going to let them come home for a while. What, what should be the rules and regs of, uh, of being a part of this? Should they still be on a budget? Should we still be trying to teach them something about finance? Absolutely. In my opinion, if you have children that are earning an income of any kind, they should be paying their own way to whatever level they're, they're, they're able to. So even if it's a minimum amount of money, they should be giving you a couple of bucks. Yeah, whether it's $50 a week, $100 a week, whatever it is, because you don't get to spend your whole paycheck on having fun. So when you think about it, you have responsibilities. You have a family. You have to put a roof over their head. You have hydro, gas, water bills, like all those things. So if your kids come home and live with you, whether you need the money or not is irrelevant. They need to understand that putting a roof over their own head is part of their responsibility as an adult. Uh, Sometimes that's hard. But at the same time, if you don't need the money, why don't you just start a savings account, stash the money away somewhere. Don't tell them you're doing that. Mm. But all of your bills have gone up. Your hydro goes up, your water goes up. So there is an actual cost out of pocket, having them at home. 
there is a stress as well because you've got your kids still living at home. You may have aging parents. That's kind of the sandwich generation that they speak of where you still have dependent children. But it is harder because kids are getting an education. It used to be you could finish high school. You could go get a well-paying job and be on your way. Like I have a lot of clients that uh, are retiring from General Motors and finishing high school at 18 and moving on to a 30-year career where you're paid well right from the get-go. Those jobs don't exist anymore. Mm. So you'll find a lot of university students are working two, three, four jobs. So you shouldn't go to work and put a roof over their head so that they can sit home and watch TV, in my opinion, but that's my opinion. Oh, that's mine too. Don't you worry about that, Carolyn. Uh, should you have a plan, or whether, whether you're the kid or whether you're the parent, should you have a plan in place before they move back in? Absolutely. Uh, some people actually will draw up a contract so that there are rules, uh, almost like house rules, expectations. I find if somebody's moved away and they've come back, uh, I have four adult children of my own. If you've gone away and lived independently, you're not going to come home and have an 11 o'clock curfew. So I think there needs to be respect in both directions and expectations. Uh, They should be responsible, perhaps even for doing their own uh, meals or certainly some of the family meals, maybe laundry. You don't want them totally coming back and you're providing maid service on top of paying for all of these things because it doesn't really help them in the long run. Uh, We won't be here forever as parents. So if they're dependent, if they're still living at your house at 30, are they still living at your house at 40 and so on and so on. Now, there are special circumstances where they aren't able to provide a living wage. And, you know, some people will actually reconfigure part of their home into Mm -hmm. an apartment. Now, if that's the case, then they should be paying not market rent, obviously, but something that's reasonable as a percentage of their income. And then, as I said, you can put it aside for them, and that can be a fund to help them with first and last month's rent when they do have steady employment, or it could be you know, their wedding fund, or you can buy them a car at some point in time with their own monies. But budgeting, I think, is the key. They need to understand that what comes in and what goes out, they need to pay themselves first, whether they you know, save up in their tax-free savings account, whether they do RSPs if their income is high enough. But there should be an expectation of um, six months, 12 months, but it shouldn't just be indefinite because we all know how quickly time flies by. So there should be an end date on this? Uh, yes, but when you're saying that, it's like, what are the consequences? Like, what are you going to do, kick them out? Yeah, yeah. So I think there needs to be touching that as, you know, how are you doing? And I think budgeting is the key. If they're disciplined and they actually uh, are looking to, to be independent, you know, you see that commercial that they have on TV, Stop Serving Cheese? <laughs> if you spoil them and indulge them, like, I'd still be living at home if somebody wanted to do my laundry and make my bed and yeah. pick up after me. So is this paradigm shifting, do you think, Carolyn? So it's not a case of, oh, we're going to go in there for a year or two, save the money we can and get the heck out of Dodge. Are they staying and not leaving? I mean, is there just a whole paradigm shift in all of this, like there are in many cultures? Uh, mm, that would probably depend on your own family dynamics. If yeah. it's working and everyone gets along well, then maybe you know they can be shoveling the driveway and cutting the grass as you, as the parents get older. Yeah. And maybe it is a compromise. Uh, somewhat independent living, I think, is good for everyone. So everyone has their privacy as well, because you do want an empty nest as a couple at some point in time. And it does make it difficult for a single person to leave home if the parent is too dependent on them. 
because I've I've met someone who the mother uh, made it very difficult for her to move on. So she never did marry. Mm. I'm not blaming the mom that she didn't marry. No. I'm just suggesting that if you skew the dynamics, it may change someone's life path. Carolyn Humby has been with us, an investment advisor at First Ontario Credit Union. Carolyn, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Let's bring in Gary Dierenfeld. Uh, he, of course, a social worker, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. And Gary is with us now. Hello, Gary. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time. We're loving this and still surbri- uh, surviving the Trump era, so that's a good thing. Oh, my God. Don't get me started. <laughs> I know. We'll never get to the topic if we go off there. Uh, so, obviously, we're talking about boomerang kids, kids that are coming back. And uh, just comparing the stats to the 1980s compared to now, uh, if you're in the age group of 20 to 30, uh, and again, I don't have the stats at my, at the t- uh, at my fingertips right now, but you know, if you were that age in the 1980s or so, you were pretty quick to get out of the house. Now it seems uh, more kids are staying longer uh, simply because of the debt and such. Are we seeing a paradigm shift here or is this just a financial constraint at this point? You know, it's almost as if that financial constraint, good question, by the way, it's almost as if that financial constraint is creating a paradigm shift where kids are kind of feeling, hey, you know what, Uh, you know, that financial crunch or not, the longer I stay at home, the more money I have in my bank account and more disposable income I have. So, so I, you know, I, I really like your question, Scott. And so I think it is creating a bit of a paradigm shift. And in a sense, making it easier, if you will, from a kind of shame or embarrassment perspective, uh, to say, yeah, I still live with my parents. Well, I remember one time when I went back, and uh, I was between jobs, and this was several years ago. My parents were still young enough. They were vacationing in Florida. And um, so my whole deal was, I'm going to give up my apartment because I'm out of work right now, and I'll go home and watch your house for three months while you guys are away, and I'll paint your house. Uh, I arrived and my parents didn't leave. And I eventually had to kick them out of their own house saying, if you don't get uh, down to Florida, I'm, I'm going to go get an apartment. So, I mean, it's, there's two sides to this, isn't there? There's not only the kids, but a lot of time the parents don't want them out. Right. And um, there's a, yet another side to this that, that I think bears mentioning. We are seeing more and more young persons uh, being um, diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And it is interfering with their ability to get into the workplace and work. So there is a larger and larger young person population staying at home, uh, sometimes a result of mental health issues, too. Hmm. Didn't think of that. Uh, is the paradigm shifting, as we mentioned earlier? Is this, you know, and we're seeing this in lots of cultures where, you know, you'll get the whole family staying there. Um, is the paradigm shifting where it's not as important for the young people to get out now? And, hey, this is a viable option. Yeah, from that perspective, it is. I'm certainly, you know, when I talk to 20-somethings, um, it's not as embarrassing to say anymore, I'm at my parents'. <laughs> it really becomes yeah. interesting when they start dating and, and looking at intimate partners because on one side or the other, somebody is looking for a partner who has their own place. I mean, that's looked at as, as a value only in terms of privacy. Um, and, and so when they start dating, they, they think, you know, who has that apartment? Hey, that, that's uh, a more desirable person to date, not because they're independent, yeah. but because they have that privacy for uh, 
the intimate relationship. I can imagine kids saying, I have my own apartment at my parents' house. <laughs> and we didn't, or maybe I have my own apartment, we just, have to, we just happen to share the same address. Yeah, no kidding, eh? But we worry about those young adults who are stuck in the basement playing video games, uh, dare I say, smoking pot, uh, and not actually being productive. So they're not developing. Correct. That's a very different circumstance to those who are feeling the economic crunch and use the home as a more, um, a, a, more of a launching pad to get their uh, personal economy together to go back out again. So, so very different circumstances for young adults being at home, and we really have to learn to discriminate and say, is this person still productive, still trying to be productive? Are they out there pounding the pavement, or are they languishing at home? Hmm. So if you decide to move back, or your parent decides to, to, to allow the kid to come back, or maybe never left, should there be a plan before you start this? Uh, should there be an, an, an in, a beginning date and an end date? Yeah, not necessarily an end date, because you know what? We can't predict the future. Uh, well, and again, it depends on the kid, depends on the issue. If we find that the child is, in a sense, using us, uh, as a free ride, we don't necessarily want to enable that if the child isn't being productive, isn't contributing. And the child can contribute to the family economy, by the way. Um, so, so it is wise to set some expectations upon return. Heck, it's hard to parent a 25 to 30-year-old. The kind of expectations that we had when they were teenagers also don't necessarily work. And so we have to discuss what is what are our mutual expectations upon each other at this time of life? Parents can feel, uh, moms in particular, there are some gender differences, uh, a responsibility to provide dinner, yet from the child's point of view, the adult child, you don't need to provide me dinner. I'm kind of running my life here, going hither and yon with, with, with my activities. You no longer have to do that. Those are discussions that are best had in advance. Uh, yeah, easy on the dinner, Mom, but here's my laundry. No. Um, <laughs> I may not be home every night at 6, but here's the bag of laundry just so in case. To those parents, I, in, in that discussion, I would encourage you to, to have your children be as fully independent as possible. Yeah. They can do their own laundry as if they were living out. Otherwise, why would they move out? Yeah, exactly. Do you remember that commercial? Stop feeding them cheese. <laughs> um, is it important to have a break in the parent-kid relationship? Uh, you know, there's that thing, pushing them out of the nest, got to get them out of the nest, whether they're going off to school or wherever, got to get them out of the nest, got to learn, got to teach independence. And then, of course, uh, they appreciate other, all the things that their parents provided for them uh, now that they have to do it uh, on their own. Is there a downfall to never having that break or that you know, toss out of the nest experience. So let me put it a different way. In the absence of experience, in the absence of adversity in life, in the absence of um, frustration, we as human beings don't learn how to overcome. We don't learn how to cope. We don't learn how to manage. So if you really want your kids to be, succeed, the degree to which you, you facilitate their independence and, 
and cause them to, in a sense, go out of the comfort zone, fend for themselves, manage, learn to cope, develop uh, banking skills, then you're creating a, a young adult who will be more successful throughout the remainder of their life. Are kids just expecting this nowadays, or is it still the mantra, I got to get out? You know, when you and I were kids, because I think you're of the same vintage as me, mm-hmm. our thinking was we had to get a car, had to get a car, had to get a car. <laughs> yeah, really. Right? So, and and that, there's been a sea change in that. You know, kids today, they're not thinking about no. necessarily having their license, certainly not thinking about having a car. So things do change over time. You know, now they're more concerned about the processing speed in their phone, and that's the status. (laughs) Really? Yeah, it's not the speed of the car, it's the speed of the phone. It's the speed of the Wi-Fi hookup. (laughs) You know, there is that kind of sea change. It doesn't carry the same weight as when you and I were kids. Yeah. And and if if we were still at home, it's like, what the heck's the matter with you? So, no, there isn't that same kind of stigma attached to being at home. I don't know if I answered your question or the one that was floating in my mind. Uh, so where are we 20 years from now? I mean, is it more of the same? Will our kids get out from underneath this financial burden by then? Uh, I can't see it changing anytime soon. Well, you know, uh, there is so much change coming. The middle class is a dying breed and not just because of big business, but because of automation in business, that um, our workforce and what we need from labor is changing dramatically. And so the whole world will be so different, Scott, in 20 years. We're going to be more concerned about global warming. We're going to be more concerned about uh, how we manage leisure. We're going to be more concerned about the distribution of capital. And when you think about that, our world is in a tremendous state of flux on all those issues now. Good point. Uh, Let me finish off with this. Have we not always been like that? Is that not what generations have been talking about for years? Is it any different now? I think it is. I think it's far more accelerated now. Gary, Um, sorry, go ahead quickly. Yeah, far more accelerated. Um, Climate change is one of the big accelerants and automation continues to be one of You those. bring up an interesting point about automation, because in the end, it's not about an economy or providing jobs. It's There'll be nothing for us to do. Is that accurate? It's not quite accurate, but it is causing tremendous shifts in, in the job market and where we are going. And so there's the old economy. I mean, look what happened south of the border. We got off. They, they were getting off coal. Trump comes in. They're getting back onto coal. And, and it isn't going to keep pace with the new economy, with the change in jobs, uh, how we have to change as a population. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's being accelerated, you know, in part by forces beyond the individual. Gary Dierenfeld has been with us, social worker, yoursocialworker.com to find out more. Gary, as always, a pleasure. Thank you for the time. Have a great day. All the best to you, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.